It's not only a prayer that God would retake new hearts, but it's a prayer that He would work in my heart as a believer, that He would ransack every dark corner and subdue it all to His reign and rule. Let your kingdom come. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Consider your own life for a moment. Do you live as if the kingdom of God is a present reality? Is your focus, time, and energy spent on building God's kingdom or perhaps your own? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part four of his series titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Today, Tom will remind you that Jesus makes it clear in Matthew chapter 6 that you need to make God's kingdom your top priority. Too many Christians live today as if God exists to advance their own personal kingdoms, when in fact, just the very opposite is true. According to Scripture, you exist as a disciple of Jesus Christ to advance His kingdom. Is that your top priority? Let's join our teacher for more now on The Word Unleashed. Now, I grew up in, in more heavily dispensational circles than I'm comfortable now. I am, a, as my mentor likes to say, I'm a leaky dispensationalist. I believe that Israel is not the church, and I believe that there, is yet, there are yet promises that God has promised to fulfill to the ethnic descendants of Abraham. That's where my dispensationalism stops. But for some, where I grew up, they wanted to see between these two expressions, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, and this was true for the Schofield Reference Bible that I grew up with, they wanted to see something different. Those two phrases were describing something different. But when you examine the parallel passages, one of which I'll show you in a moment, it becomes clear that in reality the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven describe exactly the same thing. So why would Matthew say it differently? Why would he say the kingdom of heaven? Well, he's writing to Jewish people who have a predisposition against saying directly the name of God. That's why, for example, Jesus puts in the the mouth of the young Jewish boy we call the prodigal son, what does he say? I have sinned against heaven. What does that mean? It's It's a polite and respectful way to say God who lives in heaven. So understand then that the kingdom of God is the same as the kingdom of heaven where God rules. But what is this kingdom? Well, it refers to the rule or the reign of God. Or more precisely, let me give you this definition. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is the realm over which God rules. That's all it means. The realm over which God rules. Now, when we examine the New Testament evidence, we find that there are two distinct forms this kingdom takes. First of all, there is the present form of this kingdom, the kingdom of God. There is a sense in which the kingdom of God is already here. In fact, it was already here when Jesus was on the planet 2,000 years ago. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, It says, Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. When's it going to be here, Jesus? He answered them and said, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here. It's already here right now, Jesus said. But its present form is not 
a geographical kingdom. It is not a geopolitical kingdom. And Jesus made this very clear to Pilate in John chapter 18 and verse 36. You remember Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, listen, Pilate, let me make sure you understand. I am a king, but I'm not a king, and I don't have a kingdom in the sense you're thinking. There's not a piece of real estate right now that I'm claiming as my own. There's not a group of people on that real estate that I'm claiming as my own. If my kingdom were of this world, Jesus goes on to say, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Why? Because it is a spiritual kingdom. In its present form, it's a spiritual kingdom, not a geographical kingdom, not a a literal political kingdom. Jesus makes this very clear over in Matthew chapter 19. Turn there for a moment. Matthew 19. You remember the story of the rich young ruler. This young synagogue leader, leader in his community, has already developed a great deal of wealth, maybe from his own industry, maybe from his inheritance. But he's concerned about eternal life, and he comes and throws himself down before Jesus and says, I want to have eternal life. Well, Jesus knew this young man. He knew his heart. He knew that he had an idol an idol that had to be torn down. That idol was what he owned, what he possessed. And so Jesus puts his finger on that idol and demands that he give it up. He says, I want you to go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Look at his response in verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now watch the conversation that follows. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man, now notice this expression, to enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so here he uses the expression kingdom of heaven, and he's talking about entering it. Verse 24, again I say to you, he's going to say it slightly differently, but the same basic content. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a literal needle, in other words, it's impossible, for a rich man to and watch this expression, to enter the kingdom of God. So right here in two verses back to back, Jesus puts an equal sign between kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, and he's talking about entering the kingdom. Now watch the disciples' response in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished, and they said, then who can be saved? They understood Jesus to be talking about entering into salvation. So let me put it this plainly for you. In the present form, to enter the kingdom of heaven equals to enter the kingdom of God equals to be spiritually saved. The present form of the kingdom is the spiritual rule of God in the hearts of everyone who repents and believes in Jesus Christ. Here's a key text to remember, Colossians 1.13. God rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's another way of saying the kingdom of Satan. And transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. If you're a Christian, at the very moment you believed and repented, at that very moment, God snatched you out of the kingdom in which you had lived all of your life until that moment, the kingdom of Satan, and He transferred you 
into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The moment of salvation, you entered the kingdom of heaven. You entered the kingdom of God. It is the spiritual realm over which Christ rules. The subjects of the kingdom of God are all of those who have been rescued from their sins and forgiven by God. The kingdom of God includes, in this sense, this present form, the hearts of all of those who follow Jesus Christ. So when we pray then, your kingdom come, we are praying that this current, this present spiritual form of the kingdom will advance. Now let me drill down on that a little more. What do we mean? We are asking God, when we say let your kingdom come, in this present spiritual sense, we are asking God that by His grace and by the divine act of the new birth, that He will bring more and more hearts to repent and to bow before Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let your kingdom advance in more hearts. Take over more hearts. It's a request that just like He did with us, He will rescue many others from the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of His beloved Son. It is an evangelistic prayer. The English Puritan Richard Baxter wrote this, There was a time when I looked little beyond England in my prayers as not considering the state of the rest of the world. But now, as I better understand the method of the Lord's Prayer, and specifically the second petition, I cannot be affected solely with the calamities of the land of my birth, but also with the case of the heathen and the Muslim and the ignorant nations of the earth. He said, when I understood this request, it made me realize that, God, I want your spiritual kingdom to expand in heart after heart after heart across this planet. But when we pray for this, the advancement of this current spiritual form of the kingdom, we're not only praying for new hearts to embrace the gospel, we are also praying that God's spiritual rule in the hearts of those who have already entered His kingdom, that His rule would be advanced in their hearts as well. It looks like this, Lord, You already are my King, my Lord. I am already under Your rule And yet I look in my own heart and I see that there are dark corners that as of yet are not fully subdued to your rule and your way. Let your kingdom come in my heart. Let your kingdom advance in its power, in its rule, in its reign over my decisions and my affections and and my desires. It's like that song that we sing. I really love it. Oh, great God. You remember the lyrics? Oh, great God of highest heaven. Occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. It's not only a prayer that God would retake new hearts, but it's a prayer that He would work in my heart as a believer that He would ransack every dark corner and subdue it all to His reign and rule. Let your kingdom come. But there's not only a present form of the kingdom that we're praying for, there's also the future form of the kingdom. Just as it's clear that there is an aspect of the kingdom here and now already present, it is equally clear in the New Testament that there is an aspect of the kingdom that is still future. It's the tension that theologians refer to as already, but not yet. 
Already there is one form of the kingdom, but not yet its full manifestation. There is coming a day when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. This was anticipated in the Old Testament. Turn back to the prophet Daniel. In that famous prophecy that Jesus took to Himself at His trial, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. This is Jesus' own title for himself, and he refers back to this very passage, as I said, at his trial, and claims it to be a fulfillment of himself. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed. There is a future aspect of the kingdom in which Jesus will reign over all the earth, all peoples and languages and nations. Jesus referred to this future aspect of the kingdom often in his own earthly ministry. Let me show you one example In Luke 22, at the Last Supper, Jesus alludes to this. Luke 22, verse 16. Let's start at verse 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's looking to something in the future at that point, even though he's already said the present aspect of the kingdom already existed when he was on the planet. Verse 17, he passes the cup, and he says, share it. Verse 18, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes in the future. Here we're talking about this future aspect of the kingdom. By the way, this promise of a future kingdom was also the expectation of the New Testament church. In fact, think about how Paul ends his last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He knows he's going to die, and listen to how he refers to his death. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will bring me safely through death to his heavenly kingdom. He was in his kingdom here in a spiritual sense, but he was anticipating entering into his kingdom in heaven. In the book of Revelation, we learn that this future manifestation of the kingdom will be initiated during the final judgment being unleashed on the world during a period of time the Bible calls the tribulation. Look at Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded. This is the seventh trumpet judgment. The seven trumpet judgments are all part of the seventh seal. The seventh angel sounds his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Here, as the final judgments begin to pour out on the earth, just the bold judgments are left. In rapid succession, these flat pan dishes, God pours out His wrath upon the earth. And then in chapter 19, Jesus returns. He defeats His enemies, and He establishes a literal kingdom on the earth. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20. 
Now, I know there are some of our covenantal brothers who have a problem with this passage, but let me just say that they take everything from Revelation 19 and the return of Christ through Revelation 22 and the the new heaven and new earth to be, yes, have figurative language, but to describe real historical events and in consecutive order except this one. They cut it out and put it over there. That's not hermeneutically uh, consistent. Because here you have described an event that's called a thousand-year reign of Christ. During that period of time, notice verse 2, the, the devil, Satan, will be bound for that thousand years. Verse 4, believers will reign. Notice the end, those who died will come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 6, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Verse 7, This is clearly not the eternal state because when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and he'll come to deceive the world once more. And at the end of that, verse 10, then Satan is is ultimately sent to the lake of fire where he will never exit but will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the form of the kingdom that is still future, a literal physical reign of Christ for a thousand years upon this planet that will be followed by the eternal kingdom. By the way, let me just climb up on my soapbox here for a moment, a little pet hobby horse, just so you know. We talk about going to heaven, and that's a great thing. Heaven is something we all anticipate. But understand, heaven is not our final destination. We were not made to live permanently in heaven. In fact, we only live in heaven until God brings us back with Christ to live on this planet renewed for a thousand years. And then after that thousand years, He will destroy the universe as we know it, and He will make, according to Revelation 21 and 22, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness is at home. We will live forever on a new earth. That's the eternal kingdom. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for two things. In the present sense, we are praying that heart by heart, the reign of Jesus Christ would be extended. That His current saving work and His current sanctifying work would advance in heart by heart. And we are praying in a future sense that He will quickly bring about the day when Jesus will physically, literally reign over this planet, when every knee will be forced to bow and every tongue be forced to confess that He is Lord. Your kingdom come. We've seen the conflict between opposing kingdoms. We've seen the character of God's kingdom. Finally, and just briefly, I want us to consider the cause of its advance. Your kingdom come. How does God's kingdom come? How does it advance? Well, remember, this is a prayer. Only God can cause this to happen. But what means does God use to cause His kingdom to advance? To pray, your kingdom come, is to pray that God will use certain means to advance His kingdom. What are those means? Very briefly, consider these three. Number one, the kingdom of God is advanced when we communicate the gospel. Matthew 24, verse 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and only then will the end, the future kingdom, come. You and I participate in the advancement of the kingdom when we open up our mouths and communicate the gospel. 
We're bringing others to see that they're under the rule of Satan, and we're, we're asking them to bow the knee to their true ruler, Jesus Christ. Secondly, the kingdom is advanced when we make God's kingdom our top priority. Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus says, listen, you know what the pagans do? They live for the stuff. They live for what they own, for their housing and for their clothing and for their cars, if they had cars then, for their chariots, whatever. They live for the stuff. He said, don't you be like that. Seek you first, what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all that stuff that you need, God will take care of that. Listen. Understand that you need to make God's kingdom your top priority. So many Christians, frankly, live as if God existed to advance their kingdom. The opposite is true. You live to advance His kingdom. Is it your top priority? Is it obvious in the choices that you make? Thirdly, the kingdom advances when we're willing to make personal sacrifices to advance the kingdom. Luke eighteen twenty-eight, Peter reminds the Lord that they have sacrificed a lot, their homes, to follow Him. In Matthew's account, He says, we have given up everything. And Jesus says to him, listen, no one who's given up anything for the sake of my kingdom will fail to have a reward in this life and eternal life in the life to come. You have to be willing to make personal sacrifices to advance the kingdom. When I was in college, it's the first time I heard the famous words of David Livingston. You're familiar with David Livingston. He came to Christ as a teenager, and it wasn't long after that he began to think about medical missionary work. And he invested his life, sacrificed his life, as a medical missionary on the continent of Africa. His wife died early in their ministry there. He faced constant opposition. Over the course of the many years that he served in Africa, he charted that he walked some 29,000 miles across that continent. When he died, the people to whom he ministered literally cut out his heart and buried it in the center of that continent because that's where his heart really was. A year later, they buried his body in Westminster Abbey there in London. I've seen his grave several times. It was his self-sacrifice, the fact that for the sake of the kingdom, Livingston gave up wealth and power and influence and personal comfort that causes me still to be humbled by his words. Have you ever read the famous words of Livingston in his diary? This is what he wrote. Lord, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Only sustain me. Sever me from any tie, but the tie that binds me to your service and to your heart. Lord, send me anywhere. Is that your prayer? You ever prayed anything like that to God? You ever said, God, it's not my kingdom that matters, but yours? Let me live and, if necessary, die for its advancement? Students, have you ever considered just telling God that if he were to so choose, you'd be willing to serve him as a missionary like a David Livingston? Some of you young men, have you ever even stopped to say, God, if you were to gift me and to call me, I would give my life as a a pastor if that was your will? Parents, are, are you willing to love the kingdom of God more than you love your own family? Are you willing to encourage and support your children to serve God wherever that might take them, however far from Texas that might be? If God should direct you, are you willing 
to leave everything but God and serve Him in some difficult place for the sake of His kingdom. May God give us the grace to be able to pray with all our hearts, Lord, may Your present spiritual kingdom advance heart by heart and use me in whatever way you can, whatever it may cost. Only then can we pray for that future aspect of the kingdom as John did. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly and establish your literal kingdom here on this planet. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of Lord Teach Us to Pray. Join us again next time for part five. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Plan to join Tom Pennington this summer, June 24th and 25th at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, as he introduces The Word Unleashed's first annual Faithful Stewards Conference Series. Faithful Stewards is designed for pastors, elders, teachers, and church leaders. But even if you aren't in one of those categories, you're welcome to attend. This year's theme is Loving Christ by Feeding His Sheep, a reflection on our Lord's challenge to the Apostle Peter, as found in John chapter 21. There's no cost to attend, but registration is required. June 24th and 25th. Go to thewordunleashed.org to register. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.